This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to look at God's word together. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. We pray now that you would still our hearts. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. God, we want to be people who are shaped by your word. We want to be people who are shaped by the manifesto that Jesus has for your people. So God, we pray, we come expectantly before you in your word now. We pray that you would transform us by your spirit. We ask that you would make us more like Christ. And we pray it in his strong name and all of God's people said, Amen. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says this, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks, the one who seeks, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Well, this uh, week I've spent some time in London, and it was uh, an incredible week at the Alpha Leadership Conference. So we spent two days, a part of a, a very large conference in the heart of London at the Royal Albert Hall, four and a half thousand people worshiping Jesus. But I also had this wonderful privilege of being a part of a smaller cohort of people from around the world, uh, young leaders. Um, being fed and nurtured and networking together. And we got to spend some time with some incredible people. So there's about 50 of us, and we got to sit down with the one and only John Maxwell, the leadership guru, and just do some live Q&A. We got to spend some time with uh, Nikki and Pippa Gumbel, who are the pastors of Holy Trinity Brompton in London, and just hear their story. And we also got to spend some time with N.T. Wright. Um, and... You know, there's obviously like three people in the room who know that who that is. Um, but N.T. Wright is, um, he's just, man, he's like so, 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 so smart. That guy is incredible. Um, we got to spend some time with uh, Rich Wilkerson Jr. and his wife Dawn Cherie, I think her name is. And it was just such a wonderful conference. I'm so thankful for the privilege to be able to do that and come back with um, a bit of jet lag and um, a heart that has been inspired and a head full of ideas. So um, thank you. Thank you for uh, releasing me to do that. That's um, been so great. But one of the, I just wanted to share a quick story with you. Um, so N.T. Wright is like the best New Testament professor in the world right now. I mean, he's just 
incredible. He's written over 70 books, and um, there's probably three of you who know how significant he is. And um, I mean, he's probably getting quoted across a billion churches this Sunday because of what he has written. And we got to spend some time with him, but just before his session, we had a break in our sessions, and there were two toilets in this little crypt underneath this building, in this church building in London. And we were lining up for the toilet, myself and another um, Aussie friend of mine, and there was N.T. Wright. And so we walk up and uh, say hello to him. And he's like, hello, my name's Tom. I'm like, I know who you are. <laughs> Shake his hand. Um, and there's two toilets right next to each other. And um, one guy walks into one and I walk into the other one. And I walk into the toilet and the toilet is disgusting. Like there's like 50 men in this room and no one has taken any care as to how they've been to the toilet. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to go to the toilet and I'm going to leave and N.T. Wright is going to come into the toilet after me. And what is he going to... I mean, he, like, he's going to think that this is me. This mess is me. And I'm so, so here I am, representing all of Australia. Perhaps maybe if I don't clean this mess up, I'm going to end up as a story in a book. And so I, I get a huge wad of paper. And I literally, I'm cleaning the toilet, cleaning everywhere, clean the toilet, flush, walk out of the door... No NT right, just happens to be Jamie from Australia who's there. But, um, but I just felt like I really needed to make sure that toilet was clean on the off chance that he did walk in after me. But this, um, this conference was um, this so unique. I've never been a part of a conference like it. it. It had people from all sorts of Christian backgrounds at this, uh, at this conference. There were people from Anglican backgrounds. There were people from you know, charismanglican backgrounds, like half Anglican, half charismatic. The HTB guys there were Baptists there. There were Baptocostals there. There were Pentecostals there. There were Charismatics there. There was everyone. There was even a couple of Reformed-ish people there, believe it or not. And, uh, but there were also a bunch of Catholics there as well. Now, if I'm real honest with you, um, when I saw some of the Catholic brothers that were there, the priests that were there, I made a judgment in my head. I saw the, the collars and the robes and the crucifixes around their necks, and I made a judgment. Oh, this is a safe place, right? I'm just being real with you guys. I saw the, um, the vows that they made. Vows of, I didn't realize this, it's not just a vow of chastity, a vow of poverty and a vow of obedience. But what I happened to do was meet these guys and have conversations with them. And what I found with, with these Catholic brothers are Jesus-loving, spirit-filled people who are seeking to expand the kingdom in their context. And what I found was these guys who had made these vows of chastity and poverty and obedience well, they weren't foolish decisions. Like my question was, do you guys have a recruiting issue when it comes to trying to get people into the pipeline of leadership? And the answer is yes. But what I realized was, as I talked to these guys, how beautifully countercultural those three things were. In a world that loves sex and money and power, a vow of poverty, chastity and obedience is a phenomenally countercultural thing. Now look, yes, there's still some differences and we're probably not going to line up on purgatory and praying to Mary and the saints and all that kind of stuff. But this was just such a beautifully unique conference. But if I'm honest with you, in my heart, there was that initial moment of making a judgment about someone based purely on what I saw from the externals. I saw a black robe and a white collar. And in my head, I'm like, I wonder how this is going to work. 
There are so many differences here. I'm not sure I agree with everything that they say. And this morning, Jesus has um, some interesting things to say to us, some countercultural things to say to us in his manifesto about judging people. We're good at it, aren't we? Making judgments of others. We make a judgment on an external and we're not really interested or we haven't really thought about the internals, the heart. And if you know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know that that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's trying to move us past the externals and get us towards the internals, get us towards the heart. And that's what he does here. And we love to make judgments. We make judgments all the time based on race or based on class or based on gender or sex or based on sexuality or based on religion, our, our history is defined by judgments. And Jesus, his manifesto that he has speaks so powerfully to human nature that wants to judge another so quickly. And so this morning, what I want us to see is how these words have an impact on every single relationship that we have, on every single one, on relationships that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ, on those who are outside of the church, on, on your relationship with God, really with everyone. Jesus has something profound to say to us. And so the first thing he's going to say to us is, don't be judgmental towards your brothers and sisters. You know, um, there was some research done recently um, by Olive Tree Media, and it's interesting when you start to quote and then the author's in the room, you're like, damn, I hope I get these, these statistics right. Um, but Olive Tree Media did some research a number of years ago, and they surveyed a bunch of people on what the top 10 blockers to Christian faith were. And number three on the, on the list was Christians who are judgmental. It's number three on the list, right? Of all of the things that put people off, a judgmental spirit, a critical judgmental spirit is one of the significant things. 68% of respondents said that was either a massive or a significant repel, repellent to them coming to faith. And so if we care about reaching our culture, then we have to care about what Jesus says here this morning. Or perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and that has been your experience of feeling judged a feeling like you've been made an assessment on you based purely on your externals and people didn't really care about your heart. They don't want to apologize, but give you a vision for what Jesus calls us to be as his people. So this is what he says in chapter 1, in chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I've heard that the most popular Christian tattoo is Christian Christian tattoo is uh, only God can judge me, right? Get this tattoo, they get it tattooed somewhere in their body. And it's a statement of saying, you have no right to tell me how to live my life. Only God can judge me. You cannot tell me what to do. You cannot tell me how to live. You have no right to speak into this. Only God can judge me. But the problem is that's not what Jesus means here when he says, judge not. That does not mean that as Christians we suspend critical judgment, critical thinking, assessment of people, assessment of what's right or wrong, because Jesus will actually go on to tell us, you need to do this. You need to call your brothers and sisters on sin in their life, and you need to do that gently. But what Jesus is particularly after here is the fault finder, the hypercritical person, 
the one who enjoys pointing out all of the mistakes in other people's lives. Dare I say it, the perfectionists among us, myself included. He's saying don't presume to be God in this moment. God is the only person who has the insight to see the heart. We are not judge. You can't help but think that Jesus is kind of after the Pharisees here because this is sort of their thing. This is their hobby. This is their gen. Like they're really good at being critical at pointing out all of other people's mistakes. But he also points the finger pretty squarely at me and at you. And the big idea that Jesus has here is don't be judgmental. Don't be hypercritical. Don't confuse action, what people do for essence, who people are. Be self-aware of your own mistakes, of your own mess, of your own junk, and then perhaps you will be helpful. And to illustrate this, Jesus gives us this comical word picture. This is what he means in in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In case you didn't realize, Jesus is being humorous in that moment. You kind of get the sense that Jesus is very familiar as a carpenter's son with the experience of getting a speck of sawdust in your eye. And he wants you to see how absurd this is. That you would notice a speck of sawdust in someone's eye when you have a log a plank poking out of your own. It would be kind of similar to this. You have a log, a plank, sticking out of your eye, and Jesus is saying, I mean, how can you notice the speck? It's just 2D right now, right? How do you point out the, the speck of the problem in someone else's life when you've got this gigantic problem in your own life? You imagine you're walking up to Danny down here and you're like, oh, excuse me, Danny, I don't know if you realize this, bro, but you've got a speck of dust in your eye. I mean, just so you know, it's actually really obvious. And we took a vote and everyone decided that I should be the one who would come and tell you there's a speck of dust in your eye and I think you should do something about it. I mean, like that's, that's what Jesus is trying to say. I actually do have a speck of dust in my eye right now. It's a dirty log from outside. But Jesus is trying to demonstrate This is ridiculous. I mean, how can you do that? How can you point out someone else's problems when you've got this gigantic problem? It's like the murderer who would call someone on their anger management issues for stubbing their toe and dropping a few bombs. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous, this contrast. But the reality is that it's always easier, isn't it, to notice someone else's problems before our own I don't know if you realize that. It took me a long time to realize that it wasn't always everyone else's problem. Sometimes it was my fault. Because after a while, what happens is you, you just get used to the plank. It's just there. You get comfortable with the plank. You stop noticing the plank. You, you get cozy with the plank. You start to like the plank. You start to think that the plank is actually a part of you. And you look past the plank and you see all of the problems that everyone else has. It's always easier to notice someone else's problem than it is to recognize your own. And the problem here is not with um, making an assessment or speaking into someone else's life where you see sin. That's not the problem. 
Because Jesus will call us to do that in in love. That's what Christian community is about. The problem is doing so without self-awareness. The problem is thinking that I can fix this scratch in someone's life when I myself have a life-threatening injury. The problem actually is hypocritical helping, which in the end is not really helping at all. And Jesus kind of wants to demonstrate how foolish this is. As you, as you try and wipe a speck out of something, I mean, like the, the, my arm reach isn't even enough, right? I mean, how are you going to wipe a speck out of someone's eye when you've got this, this thing that's preventing you from doing it yourself? I remember a couple of years ago, um, I had knee surgery and I got home after two days in hospital and my, my leg just blew up and got infected. I had to ring Brad and ask him to drop me at the emergency at RPA. And the hospital was so full, they just put me in this little side waiting room, which, which was actually an eye clinic. And while I was lying on that hospital bed there for about, felt like four hours with no one attending to me, one of the doctors brought in a young um, construction worker who had got a metal filing caught in his eye. And they sat him down on this machine and they kind of strapped his head into this machine and the doctor put on this, these look like big binoculars and peered into the eye of this young guy and started to scrape the, the metal filings out of his eye. And he was kind of in a fair bit of pain, pretty brave young kid to be honest. But I've got to tell you, scraping a speck out of someone's eye requires a fair bit of coordination and care and trust. It's, it's not the type of thing that you would let someone who's got a giant log protruding out of their head attempt to do for you. Jesus is saying, deal with your own junk first. And then and only then, once you've taken the log out, will you be able to see clearly and be of help to your brother or sister. But sometimes I get the impression that as Christians, we kind of pride ourselves on being the motive police. Like we're always out trying to assess or second guess or gauge or predict someone's motivations for why they've done the things that they've done. We're out to make a judgment on action rather than on essence. And that's not what the Christian family of God looks like. Christ's manifesto calls us to something entirely different, calls us to a culture of grace, calls us to a culture where we understand the gospel, where we understand that we ourselves are sinful, broken people in desperate need of God's grace. We're family. We are called to care for each other. Ignoring sin in someone else's life is not love. It's not what we do in our gospel communities. It's not what you're called to do in your gospel triplet. If you care for the person in your gospel triplet, don't ignore sin in their life. But do it. Call them on it. Help them with it from the vantage point of having dealt with the sin in your own life. That's what family does. Creates a culture where we think the best of others. A culture of self-awareness. A culture of grace culture that says every single one of us is broken and sinful. Every single one of us is in need of grace. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. That understanding, that worldview of the gospel creates a type of culture like that. And grace, in the end, is the ultimate leveler. And so that's how we ought to approach our brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving them pointing them to Christ, but only doing that once we've dealt with our own mess and brokenness and junk in light of the gospel.
But there are times, however, when Jesus calls us to make a judgment. And in particular here, he has in mind those outside. He says this in chapter 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And you might think, how does that fit in? And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure. It's a very confusing part of the flow. But He's saying here, don't, don't give dogs what is holy. And perhaps what is in the background there is not throwing um, meat, sacrificial meat that is supposed to be reserved for the priests to the street dogs, just discarding what is holy. Don't throw pearls to pigs. Now, pearls obviously a valuable item and a pig may, may mistake that for a pot or a pea and then when it finds out it's not edible, turn and, and hurt you. And so the... the Metaphor is kind of easy to understand, right? Valuable items shouldn't be discarded and wasted. But the meaning of that metaphor is really difficult to understand what Jesus is trying to get at. And this is what I think he means. I think what Jesus is saying there is that there are some who would outright reject this message that you have, this good news message. And I think Jesus particularly has in mind here the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the, the, the hypocritical religion that he has been deconstructing and, criti- and calling into question all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. To think about Paul as he takes the good news to the church in Acts chapter 13. And I don't think this is on the, on the screen for you guys, but this is what happens as Paul preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds... They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So you get this kind of picture of Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel to those who it was sent first to, but they reject it. They revile the message. In fact, you see this consistently throughout the book of Acts. They kick them out of the synagogue. They chase them out of towns. You see that happening again in the scriptures as Jesus commissions the disciples and sends them. He says, if they reject you and the message, shake the dust off your feet and leave them. Do not take what is holy. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. But to be honest with you, as I've read that, and I'm not, I'm not really sure if there's any other better explanation than what that is, it kind of grates my missional sensitivities. I don't know if you felt that, like, hang on a sec, does that mean that I give up on people? Does that mean if there's someone who has rejected this message that I wipe my hands off them, shake the dust off my feet and, and give up? And I would caution us, because I think that's a real temptation, is it not, as we are continually seeking to share God's love with people, as we continue inviting people to introducing Jesus or to gospel community, as, and there's rejection after rejection after rejection, it's easy to just think, well, maybe I should just stop throwing my pearls to pigs. But we need to be careful before writing people off. Paul himself is the one who, who says in Romans 9 that he wishes himself to be cursed if he could reach his people. The very people that Jesus is, is against here. Those hypocritical Pharisees, those teachers of the law, the Jews who have rejected the Messiah. We need to be careful before we give up on people. And honestly, sometimes it feels like I'm tempted to do this, particularly when 
Perhaps the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door and I think, oh, here we go again. But honestly, I've never been there. I've never been in a moment where I think, this is a waste of time. God cannot possibly change this person's life. And so my caution is, whilst I think that there is this reality where we don't want to throw our pearls before pigs, we need to balance that with the, with the reality that God is powerful to transform. God is powerful to save. No one is beyond His grace. And so Jesus, in some moments, will call us, will say, judge not, and then in another moment, He will say, make an assessment, make a call, make a judgment. As we relate to our brothers and sisters, as we relate to those outside of the family of God. But what about as we relate to God? If the hypocrite's response to others was cynical judgment, it seems that sometimes their response to, to God was no different. And Jesus paints a beautiful picture of what relationship with God looks like in verse 7. This is what he says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus promises here, that God answers our prayers and he answers our prayers with good things. God answers. God gives good gifts. He is not a stingy God. Jesus invites us to pray here and promises that God will give us good things. I love A.W. Tozer's quote. He says, prayer is not an assault on the reluctance of God. As if we're trying to twist God's arm. And convince him to give us something that he perhaps doesn't really want to give up. Overcoming his reluctance. That is not what prayer is about. God is like a father. He loves to bless us with good things. And I mean, if you missed Brad's sermon a few weeks ago on uh, chapter, chapter 6 on the Lord's Prayer, go back and, and see that beautiful picture of what prayer looks like. The fact that we get to come before God as Father. He is a good Father. He knows what it is to give good gifts to his children. And as a father, I'm capable of that. This morning, Judah asked for three bowls of Nutrigrain. First bowl, he normally just has one. First bowl, second bowl, third bowl. More Nutrigrain, more Nutrigrain. And I'm happy to give him breakfast, more food. It's good. He's growing. He, he needs to be fed and nurtured. But when he asks for more iPad or chocolate and ice cream at 9 o'clock at night, the answer is no, because those things aren't good things. We have a heavenly father who knows what is good. And he gives what is good. But you might think, well, that hasn't really been my experience. It doesn't resonate with me. I feel like I've asked and I've not received. Or I feel like I've knocked and the door hasn't opened. Or I feel like perhaps I've received something and maybe it's not that good. You've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed that your children will be safe. And then at 17... God, what are you doing? How can this be good? None of that changes the character of God. None of that changes his fatherhood. None of that changes the fact that he gives us good things. And we can pray. And sometimes God will say yes, and we love it when he says yes, don't we? Yes. We'll pray, and sometimes God will say no. 
And sometimes we'll pray and God will say, not yet, not yet, not yet. For many years, God might say, not yet. God is the God who looks at our life and our circumstances in the same way that I look at my kids. He knows what's good for us and he knows what's not good for us. And he consistently gives us what is good and is right because he is our heavenly father. He loves us. And so the type of relationship that the teachers of the law, the hypocrites, the Pharisees had with God was one of trying to manipulate him trying to twist his arm with their long words and their big sentences. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not how we relate to God. He is our Father. He loves us. He knows what's right. And then finally, in this kind of catch-all statement, he says, this is how you relate to everyone. Inside, outside, God, every single person, this is how we relate to everyone in verse 12. The golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Probably the most famous line of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Everyone can quote this one to you. It's not necessarily unique to Jesus, but the way that Jesus says it is unique. It's more positive than any other person in history ever said. And this is probably the most simple principle of human relationships that exists. Treat others the way you wish to be treated yourself. If you want someone to think the best of you, you think the best of them. If you want someone to give you grace in your mistakes, you give them grace in theirs. If you want to uh, be valued, you add value to someone else. If you want people to be generous with you, you be generous to them. If you want to receive kindness and tenderness and love, be kind and tender and loving. That's what Jesus is saying. And imagine if we lived like that. Imagine a church community like that, a family like that, a, a gospel community like that, a society like that. What a beautiful picture that Jesus paints. This is his vision for the kingdom. This is his vision for what it looks like to be God's people. And really, there is no greater example of this than Jesus. The one who would consider our needs above his own. Jesus who would meet a woman in John chapter 8 who was caught in adultery and show her grace. And then in another moment, Jesus who would meet Pharisees and teachers of the law and would oppose them both out of love. Jesus who would give up the riches of heaven, cross the universe to love us who would take the Father's judgment on our sin so that we would be freed from that and could experience God's grace. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it looks like to live this reality out. And it's from that reality, it's from the foundation of the good news of grace that we look out at other people and view them with the lens that God gives us. You see, in the end, a hypocritical judgment, a judgment based on action that ignores someone's essence, really is a method of lifting yourself up by pushing another person down. It makes us feel good about ourselves. Jesus says, it doesn't work like that in my kingdom. We flip it. I go down to lift other people up. That's what it looks like to be God's people who have been shaped by this narrative of the gospel. 
to be God's people, to love, to show grace, to be tender, to be forgiving to every single person. And imagine what it would look like. I mean, we've seen this happening, have we not? This is what our gospel communities are a beautiful expression of. This is what it looks like when Terry sidles up next to one of the young mums and says, you're doing great, keep going, keep going, and encourages. Instead of looking at a young mum's mistakes and thinking, what a failure. Of course, she should be doing better than that. This is the type of community that Jesus wants us to create here at Anchor Church, in our triplets, in our gospel communities, in our broader church family. The type of family that views other people through the lens of the good news of of the gospel. We're going to respond to that grace now in a number of ways. And the first is we're going to pray together. We have a prayer team available. They'll be up the back with orange lanyards around their neck. And I want to encourage those of you this morning who perhaps are feeling a sense of conviction over a critical spirit that you might have, or maybe someone that you've been judging and you need to do business with God and repent of that sin, head to the back. The prayer team would love to pray for you. And we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper this morning as we participate in this meal together. Those of you who love Jesus and worship Him, this meal is for you and I invite you to come forward during the next couple of songs and take the bread that symbolizes His body and dip it into the grape juice that symbolizes His blood and eat it in remembrance of God's grace, of His mercy, of His love, of that moment when Jesus treated you better than Himself, laid down His life and died for your sins. Let me pray for us, church. God, we thank You that you have demonstrated demonstrated your grace, your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be that type of people. You would help us to be a people who would view every single person you put in front of us as someone who you've called us to love, to show grace, and to show mercy to you, because that is what you have done to us. We ask that you transform this community by your Spirit. Make us more like Jesus. We pray it in his strong name. Amen.